The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, who was the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. In the, and after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to tell you a brief story. And I want, after you hear this story, I want you to decide whether or not the people in this story did anything morally wrong. Okay? Here's the story. Uh, a family's dog ran outside of their house, got out, ran outside their house, and got hit by a car and died. Uh, the family, they go out and they, they find the dog which has just died. And they've heard that dog meat is delicious. So they take the dog back into, back into their house, cut up the dog, cook it, and eat it for dinner. Nobody saw them do this. No one, it was in the privacy of their own home. And nobody was, was, no one was made sick by the eating of the dog meat. Did they do anything morally wrong? Okay, there's some, there's some no's. Okay, good. Uh, was there, is there anyone who's just like, yes? <laughs> the story's terrible. <laughs> so this, this, uh, this story, uh, do you think that story's bad? The, the source I'm drawing from, they're far worse stories. Uh, this story is one of dozens of stories that a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, uh, he took a number of stories that kind of pressed into like social taboos uh, that were, they, we, we were like, we have this reaction in our stomach like, what? But we don't necessarily think it's perhaps morally wrong. No one's explicitly harmed. He has a number of these stories, and he, he would tell these stories to, all, to different peoples around the world and would ask them the same question. Was anything, did anything morally wrong happen in this story? So he, he talked to people in Chicago uh, and uh, different places in Brazil, uh, in India, uh, and also uh, different places in Philadelphia. He started uh, doing this project... Um, while he was getting his doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania in West Philly. So he would ask different people, he would ask he would, uh, hundreds of people he interviewed. Some would be like his Penn grad students, and then others would be like he would go to the McDonald's at 40th and Walnut and offer to pay for people's coffee. Uh, so just local West Philadelphians, he would ask them, he would tell them these stories and ask them the same question. And he had, he had, what he discovered was fascinating, was that people who tended to be wealthier, more westernized, more educated, they would answer these questions by saying, I mean, they'd be like, yeah, that's, that's wrong, but I can't really say, I, can't, I don't understand why it's wrong. Or they'd say, like some people said here, it's like, no, it's fine. It's, it's not morally wrong at all. Um, they would say it was just, a, it, maybe it was just like a violation of a social convention or a cultural norm or a taboo, but it's not morally wrong. 
And what, what he found that, that with these folks that he interviewed, which was interesting, was that oftentimes these folks, they would, in trying to like reason out their answer, they would try and change the story. They would try and change the story. Be like, well, some, if they said it was wrong, they'd be like, well, someone was probably actually did get sick from eating the, the dog meat. Or they would say, well, maybe someone did see. But some, and they, so they would try and change the story. They would try and, in order, they would try and inject their morality into the story to make it fit, which the, the morality for, the, for, for these folks, basically it, it came down to everything had to do with individuals being harmed. If individuals are harmed, then it's morally wrong. And if individual, individuals aren't harmed, then it's morally neutral or morally right. So again, that was the more, this is the audience over here, more Western, more educated, wealthier. So you can imagine, he got those answers in Chicago, more upper class Brazil, um, with his Penn grad students. But then he, he, he noticed there was a different answer, different answers that folks would give. And the folks who were from backgrounds that were poorer, who weren't as westernized, who were less educated, they tended to answer these questions, respond to these stories more straightforwardly. And they would just be like, yeah, no, that's morally wrong. This is wrong. That's wrong. Uh, and they would, for those folks, there wasn't a line between like morality and someone just being a social convention or a cultural norm or a taboo. For those, for these folks, those are they're, they were one and the same. And for them, as, as he was writing about, he's like morality for the group of people over here. It's not just about harm to individuals. Morality is more about like defending this like web of relationships of like. There's like their community like relationships to be maintained, their institutions to be maintained, family relationships to be maintained. Like there needs to be like some sanctity, purity, holiness between people and God. Like there's this vast web of relationships that have to be maintained with morality, which means there are more moralities thicker. And we can say that something like that is definitely wrong. So you can imagine he got those answers more in India or in, poor, in poorer neighborhoods in Brazil. But what was fascinating is that when he interviewed the Philadelphians in West Philly, he found his grad students, Penn grad students were on one side, but the, the folks who he talked to at the McDonald's at 40th and Walnut tend to be on the other side. And he thought he had to go like halfway around the world to discover this difference, but he only had to walk a few blocks from where he was studying. So I ask you, which of these two moralities that I just gave, you know, the harmed individuals or maintaining a complex web of relationships. Which one of these two moralities, the more Western wealthy one or the more non-Western one, which one sounds more like the morality that we tend to see in the pages of the Bible? I will, maybe we could answer that question with a story. I'm going to tell you a brief story. And after you hear it, I want you to decide whether or not the person in the story did anything morally wrong. A father got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. His son walked by, saw him, did nothing about it, and told his brothers about what happened to their father. Did the son do anything morally wrong? This camp would probably be like, nope, no one was hurt. But this camp would be like, yeah, yeah. Think about this, the web of relationships, what this means for the father. I, I, I open this long way all to say, the morality law, oftentimes when we, I, something I've been told by some people in this room, it's like, Stephen, you get all the weird texts. You get all the difficult ones. And um, I think like 98% of people in human history have tended to be more like this group over here. And a lot of times when we find, when we encounter texts that are weird or difficult, it's actually not 
because the text is weird or difficult. It's because we're weird and unique. And the way that our morality works in like, you know, upwardly mobile, western, 21st century world, like we're actually the weird ones. Like men, women, and children throughout history would have listened to this story, I think, and been flabbergasted. Or at least more like that than we, than we were, where we're just like befuddled. So I, 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 I give that long opening. I'm going to kind of try and use it as a lens, I think, to try and process this story, um, which is difficult, confusing for us, which it was for me, too. Like, I, you know, I, Penn, Penn State, like, I went to Penn. I'm more in this camp. Um, what's going on with this story? I mean, my first read, few read-throughs of the, of the text, um, I always try and, like, bring, like, the most intense questions I can to a text whenever I start studying for it. Um, and I kept coming back to two questions. What in the world did Ham do wrong? And why are all the consequences not for him, but for his future son, Canaan? I don't know if you caught that. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Well, those are the two questions I kept coming back to. Let me, let me try and address those. What did Ham do wrong? It's worth starting by saying that Ham is the bad guy in this story. Uh, a lot of times, a, a take I've heard on this story a lot is like, hey, uh, Noah was like, he's this great hero of the faith. He's righteous in the eyes of God, walks with the Lord, does all the Lord says. But then even one as high and mighty as, as Noah, he falls and he's drunk, drunk in his tent. And uh, it's, it's like this fall from grace for a, a hero, of the, hero of the faith. And that's, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's not true. I, I think that there is something to that take. But if you look at it, really this text is about how did the different sons respond? And what are the blessings and curses that proceed from how the, the sons respond? That's actually more the focus of this text. Noah's drunkenness is certainly not a good thing. The Bible's pretty unanimous in that voice, and the drunkenness is not a good thing. But it's about how Ham dishonored his father. Ham dishonored his father. His father's caught in a moment of vulnerability and shame, and Ham neglects his duty as a son to defend the dignity of his father. He takes the information that he sees, and he goes and tells his brother about it, brothers about it. Does that mean he gossips? We don't know. Maybe. Just says he went and told them. It's, uh, what's interesting, when you read like Western commentators on this, this passage over the past 100 years, people from over here, they, the funny thing is they do the same thing with the dog story. They start reading, they start looking back and being like, well, Ham probably did hurt Noah, actually. Uh, they, it's, 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 it's kind of funny. They go back and they're like, well, the, you know, he, he saw the nakedness of his father. Like, that's a, an expression that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to suggest that he could have actually harmed Noah. Like, maybe he didn't just walk by the tent. Maybe he, he abused Noah in some way. And, and, the, 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 truth, and the, the truth is that that doesn't add up. Because the, 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 the contrasting behavior is highlighted by his brothers, right? So the contrast, what, the, what does the text really want us to see that the, the brothers did correctly, that Shem and Japheth did, is that they, they very carefully did not look at their father, and they covered him up. And those are, the, those are the things that Ham didn't do. So all that we can really, there's only evidence in this text to say, Ham walked, walked by, looked at his father, saw his nakedness, and then walked away and told his brothers. Didn't cover him. What did Ham do wrong? He dishonored his father. So Ham's the bad guy. What are, why, are there, why are the consequences directed at his son Canaan? Reread uh, verse uh, 25 with me. Noah, after he wakes up from his stupor, he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Um, so this observation that, that 
the Noah wakes up and he doesn't curse Ham. He curses Canaan, who is uh, Ham's son or Ham's future son. And he's the one who receives the curse. This observation is important. It's actually been overlooked a lot in the history of the church. Um, I'm going to go on a little digression here. And there, I will guess there, is, there are many of you in this room who have heard of this before, and there are many of you that haven't. Um, I think it's a, it's a digression we're taking. Uh, there, this text uh, was used for hundreds of years uh, in the history of the church, but not only the church, also in Judaism and Islam, uh, to justify race-based slavery. Um, and maybe if you haven't heard that before, you're like, where in the world are they getting that from here? I'll, I'll show you. Um, they would, the, the argument that they would make was that ham meant something close to black in Hebrew. And if you look in chapter 10 of Genesis, you'll see that ham, some of ham's, ham's descendants are the nations of Egypt, uh, of Cush, which is south of Egypt, and Put, which is modern-day Libya, so African nations. And they looked and they, they, they saw that, well, look, there's a curse here for Ham's offspring, Ham's, Ham's sons, to be a servant of servants. So the argument then goes, this is called, it's called the curse of Ham. The argument then goes, well, these people have been fated by God to be slaves. Servant is just a, is just a gentle word for slaves. To be slaves forever. Those with black skin. This is an argument made by defenders of slavery in this country in the 1800s. This is preposterous. It's a preposterous take on this, t- on this text. Ham doesn't mean black. Also, even more plainly, my observation here, the curse isn't for Ham. Like the, the whole, the name of the theory is the curse of Ham. Ham's not the one cursed. Uh, Canaan is the one cursed. And kind of inconveniently, the land of Canaan, the, the people who would have lived in the land of Canaan would not have had dark skin. Inconvenient fact. Uh, for those who would be upholding this, this, this theory. So the, the curse of Ham is a ludicrous twisting of Scripture from the start. Um, and I'll talk more about this at the very end. It's also an even worse twisting of the, really the whole story of Scripture. I don't use phrases like this willy-nilly up here, but it's, just, it's really just racist propaganda. Um, and if you ever hear someone, these, these things are out there in the, the corners of the interwebs. If you ever see someone out there who's using the curse of Ham to justify their anthropology, their understanding of who humans are and the nations, reject it as contrary to the word of God and antichrist. Okay? Getting back to the question, why is Canaan the one cursed for Ham dishonoring Noah? So he's cursed because his father dishonored his grandfather. Um, Think about our two groups of people again. Like, in Scripture, the sins of fathers bring consequences into the lives of their descendants. We've seen this in Genesis already uh, over the past year. Like when Cain murders Abel, we see just this ripple across generations, and it gets worse and worse and worse. We who are the more Western, wealthy, educated, we tend to view people as isolated, free individuals. Um, the folks who are more around this side, they tend to see that it's easier for, for folks from more traditional cultures to see the connection between fathers and sons, mothers, daughters, across generations. And I think if we start to actually look hard at our lives and the lives of families we know, we can see that, like, oh, yeah, it makes sense that, like, the con- like what one generation does has ripple effects across other generations. Consider families you know. How do things like adultery, alcoholism, divorce, abuse, addiction, like, how do these things affect children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. 
they ripple pretty hard. Each generation has its own freedom, but also each generation has to reckon with who they are and where they come from. So Ham does not honor his father, and as a consequence, his son's line will be dishonored. And the Canaanites, as you keep reading through the Old Testament, the Canaanites, they end up confirming this, this, uh, the, this curse. Uh, they, they end up being the, the most grievous demon worshipers, the most grievous uh, child sacrificers on the pages of Scripture. To sum up what the text is saying then, Ham dishonors his father and his son's line is cursed as a consequence. So we've been, we've, over the past, this is happening immediately after the flood. This is what we've been talking about, uh, what the sermons have been about over the past few weeks um, during the season of Advent. Uh, we've been talking about how the flood is really a new creation. It's like the world starting anew. What this passage is, in a lot of ways, is like the fall happening anew. The, there, there are these, these striking clues uh, that just as like the flood is a new Genesis 1, the creation of the world, a new Genesis 2, a new garden, um, this is a new Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. This is a new fall narrative. Um, consider some of these, these clues. Um, both Adam and Eve's fall, you know, the, them taking of the fruit of the tree that was forbidden and eating it and um, that story, uh, and this story, both happen in a garden, right? Noah plants a vineyard. Uh, both, some, the moment, a momentous thing happens with the consumption of the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the tree. Uh, both end with uh, languages of curse and prophecy. Uh, the, the curse that we see on Canaan in this passage is really similar to the curse on the serpent that we see in Genesis 3. Both also include people being discovered naked and then being dis- in, in shame and then being covered in grace. So like Adam and Eve are, you know, they try and cover themselves with fig leaves and then God in his grace covers them with, with garments of skin in Genesis 3. In this passage, it's, it's Noah's sons who cover him. And the, the one with Adam and Eve, that's the fall. You know, we, in our tradition, it's capital F. It's when sin comes into the world and sin is still with us. Um, and, uh, but in, in, as we read through Genesis, there, there is the fall, but there's a sense in which there are mul- like the fall like ripples and gets wider as, the, as Genesis 1 through 11 unfolds. We see like the, in the beginning, we see a breaking of relationship with God and mankind, breaking of relationship between husband and wife, between man and woman. Cain murders Abel, it's a breaking of relationship between brothers. All these like, different, think about the web of relationships. All the web of relationships are just breaking, 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 breaking under the weight of sin. Um, Victor talked last week about the breaking of relationship between humans and animals. We saw that earlier in Genesis 9. In this passage, we see the breaking of a relationship, of, like under the weight of sin, between a father and son. Between a father and son. All these relationships in our world, by default, remain shattered. And I have to draw particular attention to how this text is like such a clear breaking between father and son, or between parent and child, between mother and daughter. So much of our suffering that we know um, in our own lives comes because we know this is true, right? Because that we know that like there's a naturally broken relationship between parents and their children. We know this as we've prepared to see family over Christmas, right? That the default setting for relationships between parent and child is not peace. That's not the default, but conflict, tension, 
disorder, rivalry, and suspicion. Um, so just like a, I mean, a, a clear takeaway from this text, guys, is, is looking at these two sons. It's, 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 it sounds moralistic, but it's just plain. It's like the text is, it's, we're supposed to be like one son and not like another. A clear application of this text is the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the, in the Lord, the land your God is giving you. Um, Shem and Japheth are blessed because they honored their father. It's the only commandment in the Ten Commandments that comes with a promise. So as, as most of us, as we uh, prepare to spend time with our families over Christmas, I know not all of us will see our families over Christmas. Not all of us will see our parents. Some of us in this room, our parents have died. Um, I, think this, I, I think this charge still applies, though. I would charge you to honor your father and mother as you go home for Christmas or as you do whatever, wherever you go, your spiritual, or your spiritual fathers and mothers. Um, consider the image of Shem and Japheth walking backward with a blanket over their shoulders uh, and, and covering their father's nakedness. Consider the honor it takes when the father has beclowned himself for them to honor him in that way. Consider that image. What would it look like for you to do that during this season with your own parents in thought, in word, and in deed in front of your parents or maybe perhaps especially when your parents aren't around? I, like I know for, for us in this room, in some way, all of our parents, every single, every single parent in one of us who has parents in this room have been like Noah in this passage at some point or another. For some of us, it's been a lot more than others. For some of us, our parents have been a lot more like Noah than others. Um, some of us may even say, like, I think my, my dad, my mom, they've been like Noah. I don't know a time they haven't been like that. They've been drunken or ashamed or they've been a failure or they've been vulnerable. But here's, here's the truth, guys, is that the world, our own flesh, the devil himself, there's a united chorus of those saying that sons should shame their fathers, that children should shame their parents. And the voice is so tempting, isn't it? Like, aren't we just so much smarter than them? Haven't we, like, haven't we just moved past them? Can't we see so many things that they can't see? They have so many blind spots. There's so many ways that they hurt others, they've hurt us, that they're not aware of. Beware of pride. Beware of pride. There's, you know, I'm not saying that we should pretend like our parents are, are perfect. Of course not. Of course not. Um, but I would ask, like, is it possible, um, is it possible that there will be just as much healing for us in our lives through honoring our parents as we believe there will be through criticizing them and shaming them. Sometimes I feel like, especially, I feel this especially like with, with my generation, it's like, just, sometimes we just, we just love criticizing our parents, and we have like this whole cottage industry of criticizing our parents and talking about how, uh, how, how they're responsible for all of our problems. Is it possible that there could be just as much healing for us through honoring our parents and following that really hard command of God, even, if, even though they've beclowned themselves, like Noah. 
there could, be, could there be just as much healing and honoring them as there would be through criticizing them and processing how they've malformed us? And to those of you who are, who are younger, those of you who are my age, maybe those of you who have little kids, like, I'm beginning to see, golly, I really hope my children treat me this way one day. And of course, we don't seek to honor our parents because we're just supposed to be good people. Uh, but because Jesus, uh, we on our, in our own state and our sin, we are far more naked, far more ashamed, far more be, have beclowned ourselves in our sin than Noah has. And we need a far, you know, a far bigger, a far more glorious blanket to cover us. And Jesus offers that, and his blood covers us, and covers our shame, and wipes, and wipes us clean. And he, he honors us even though we, we deserve to be dishonored. He takes the dishonor. That's why we can treat our parents. That's why we can honor our father and mother. That's why we can honor our father and mother. That's how we can walk out these commandments. Which leads me to, to, to Jesus, which is where I'm going to spend my time concluding today. Um, consider again the curse on Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. A servant of servants, the lowliest of the low. Does that sound familiar at all? Who can we say has occupied that position? Uh, here's the, the uh, verse from the Gospel of Mark that I had the kids in elementary school memorize back in October. The Son of Man, which is Jesus referring to himself, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came as a servant of servants. You know, we're, Next week we're going to be celebrating how our Lord was born in a manger. You know, it's a slave's birth. And he dies a slave's death on a cross. Jesus takes on this curse. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He, take, he bears this curse. He traveled through his life carrying this curse. He came in the form of a servant. He died. Not only did he die, he died the death of a criminal. Ham's sin, it breaks the relationship between father and son. It lead, this in the next chapter, it's going to lead to the nations being scattered, like the, the sons of Ham and the sons of Shem and Japheth are going to be, a, you know, they're going to be against each other. The, nation, the, the nations which descend from them are dispersed. But Jesus, he comes as the lowliest servant, the one who washes feet, and he reverses this curse. He lowers himself so that the lowest can be lifted up. He bears the curse on the sons of Ham so that even the sons of Ham and those like them can be set free. After Ham, the nations are splintered. But in Christ, the nations are brought back together and reconstituted into one body called the church. That's us. And this is why, by the way, getting back to my digression, this is why the curse of Ham is antichrist. It's because it, it tears asunder. It divides that which Christ has brought together. It, it denies that different races, black and white, can be united in one in Christ. It's a denial of the incarnation, which we're, which we're going to be celebrating here at Christmas. It's a denial of Christ's servanthood, of his cross, and of his resurrection. This is Jesus. He's the one who, like Shem and Japheth, covers us in our shame and nakedness, in our sin by the blood of his cross. Like Shem and Japheth, he covers us. He's also the one who takes the place of Ham and bears the curse of being low for us so that we can be uplifted. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.